I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 8. For those who are curious, on Friday when we have the memorial service for, for Ruth, the details of that will be given out this week via email. Uh, we don't have the exact times yet. But Psalm 8, as we continue looking at the Psalms, verses 1 to 9, hear now the word of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we ask now that you would uh, fill our hearts uh, with uh, this exuberant praise that we hear here in the psalm, that through your word, our hearts and our minds would be enlightened to praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in his sermon on Psalm 8, Steve Lawson, who I refer to for this uh, sermon on Psalm 8, well, he tells the story of King Louis XIV, who ascended to the throne of France at the age of four. Uh, he stayed and ruled uh, France for 72 years. He enjoyed the longest reign in modern European history. Well, he was an arrogant man, a self-consumed emperor who was so intoxicated with his own power, he called himself the great monarch and declared, I am the state. Well, like all kings, he died in 1715. And as you would expect, he prepared his own funeral, and it was nothing short of spectacular. Uh, the great cathedral was packed with mourners to pay final tribute to their king as he was laid in a solid gold coffin. In order to dramatize the deceased ruler's greatness, there was a solitary candle burned above the jewel-laden casket. That's what lit the hall, that one candle. Thousands waited in hushed silence, and all they did was gaze at that solitary flame. Well, at the appointed time, the funeral service began, and the bishop who presided stood up to address the mourners and all the clergy of France. And when the bishop rose, he did something that stunned the whole nation. Bending down from the pulpit, he extinguished the lone candle that represented the greatness of King Louis. And when he put out the candle, nothing could be seen, but it could be heard. The people just gasped in unbelief. And then out from the darkness echoed four gripping words, our God is great. Only God is great. Despite man's inflated view of himself, despite the king's view of himself, God alone is glorious. And see, that is what this psalm 
is all about. From the very first verse, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. To the very last verse, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And everywhere in between, David marvels at God's splendor over all, at God's strength over all, uh, God's sovereignty over all, God's supremacy over all. It's the only psalm of praise that is entirely addressed to God. There's not a call to praise, as some psalms do. There's no talk about potentially praising, just pure praise. And see, it's the fact of that, 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 that the difficulty in interpreting and preaching a psalm like this comes out. One preacher said, trying to balance between academic exposition uh, while not losing the artistry is the key. See, the Psalms are poetry put to music. And if we're not careful, we can get bogged down in the exposition and lose the emotion. We, we can faithfully study the words, but we lose the wonder of worship that the Psalms are meant to inspire. When David wrote Psalm 8, he probably was unlikely sitting behind a desk engaged in an academic study. He was reflecting, I'm sure, reflecting on his past. Uh, you can picture uh, David uh, uh, as the shepherd, the younger David. He's sitting on a hilltop. It, it's night. He's surrounded by sheep. He, he looks up to the sky above him. The stars are shimmering against the dark black drop. Uh, the moon is shining brightly, and as he stares and he, he meditates upon that spectacular scene before him, he, he's just awestruck. He's caught up in the wonder by the magnificence of God's creation. He's unable to contain himself. He picks up his instrument. That's what the subscript of Psalm 8 says. Um, he grabs his gittith, I believe it's pronounced. It's a stringed instrument that, that is shaped like a wine press. And so he takes his instrument and he brings the strum and sing. And he says, when I look up to your heavens, he sings it, I can't. But the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have set in place. He, he can't hold back the praise. He, he's unable. He, what a tremendous God you are. How marvelous is your name. How majestic. That is what's happening in this psalm. Beloved, we're never to study the Psalms for study's sake, all, all Scripture for that matter, but especially the Psalms. Of course, we have to study them. Of course, we should read academic works that help us understand them, but we don't stop there. After we've wrestled with what's the psalmist getting at, once we've read the commentaries and heard the preachers, we step back and we take it all in, and we get, are to get caught up in the wonder and the majesty of the beauty of our God. Give praise to him for his creation, for its beauty and its wonder, and allow it to be a reminder of your place and my place in the universe. Be drawn up to God in worship as you contemplate his creation, and then, as it were, come down to earth and reflect upon yourself in that context. That's the theme of this psalm. The greatness of God, the, the surpassing majesty of God, and the place of man within God's universe, the glory of God, and the glory of man in relationship to God. That's how the Psalms outline. If you, if you look at verse 1 and 2, and then it's repeated in verse 9, the focus is God. And then in verses 3 to 8, the focus is on man. 
And you say, Pastor, you just said this psalm was all about God. And if you count the verses, there's more about man than there is about God. But the point David is making is that man cannot understand his role in the universe, in this world, apart from a correct understanding of who God is. By the way, this is why Calvin made this point in the beginning of his Institutes. It's certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face, he says. And then having having, um, uh, looked upon God's faith, he then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. Calvin tells us, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost only in two parts, the knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And we must begin with God and we must end with God, and everything in between we must understood in the setting of God, in relationship to God. And so, even though he mentions man, he's doing it in the context of our relationship to God, and so ultimately the psalm is about God. Now, what I want to do is look at three points, simple points, the glory of God, the glory of man, and then we'll close with the glory of the God-man. We've already begun to look at the glory of God. We see the glory of God in his creation, but it's seen in more than that. In fact, his glory, we're told in verse 1, is above the heavens. We do not worship God in creation. That's what a pantheist does. We we worship the God of creation. He's left his imprint on creation, that is true, but his glory exceeds the, the heights of creation. The heavens are magnificent, and yet they were shaped and fashioned by the fingers of God, says verse 3. That's the image we're trying to point out here, and that underscores it. We look at the heavens and declare, and we know even more than they did, right, when it comes to the universe, and we're, wow, this is amazing. And the psalmist says, oh, yeah, God just made that with his finger. And it's showing the greatness of God. It's, it's just the work of his hands. And, and so it, it points out that God is transcendent, that he is, he is sovereign, that he's above creation, that he governs this whole universe. And, and that's implied by the names that David uses here for God. We read our Lord, our Lord is two, uh, you know, we read those as Lord and Lord, but in the Hebrew, it's two different names for God. The first is Yahweh. It's the proper name of God. It literally means he exists. He's the self-existent one. That's who God is. He's the great I am. Unlike creation, there was never a time which God didn't exist and that he wasn't. Theologians refer to this as God's aseity, self-existence. He's always been. That's the first name, Yahweh. Well, the name Yahweh is followed by the name Adonai. In the Hebrew, it's a name which stresses God's ability to govern. It's the term used to address kings. It's the Lord of creation and the universal ruler of creation. And see, not a star that we see in the skies would remain if God did not uphold it with his omnipotent hand. And so we see God's glory here in his names. We see it in his creation. We see it in his sovereign rule over creation. And we see it in his omnipotent power to create a world like this with just a word. Now, according to verse 2, 
God's power is on display in contrast with the enemies of God on one hand and babies and infants on the other. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, we read, to still the enemy and the avenger. See here, what is happening, God's presented with a challenge, David writes. His foes, his enemies, the avengers stand against him. And they, they want to attack him, as it were. And, and, and God, as you would expect, stops them in their, their tracks. Their advance is stilled by something weak and immature in the world, the praises of babies and infants. This is why Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 21. The religious leaders were the foes. They were the enemies. They were the avengers, as it were. They, they sought to punish Jesus Remember, Jesus had cleansed the temple. He healed on the Sabbath. And the children, while even though that happened, were crying out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed be the name of the Lord. And and for the religious leaders, this was just too much for them to handle. And so they wanted Christ to to silence the children. And he responds by quoting this verse. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And so the voice of children praising Christ was the enemy's undoing. One writer says, praise is a bastion against the forces of evil. There's a story that's told of a little girl. I don't know how true it is, but it's interesting. Nonetheless, who used to walk to school each day uh, with a Bible in her hand. And every day as she had to pass by a house, uh, the house of a skeptic, an atheist. He, did, he didn't believe in God, and he was always sitting on the porch, and he would see her walking by proudly with her Bible in her hand. And one day it was just too much for him. So he approached the little girl and said, do you believe that book? Well, yes, I do, said the little girl. All of it? Yes. Even the part about Jonah being swallowed by a big fish? Yes, she said, I believe it. Well, how can that possibly be true? And she sat for a minute and said, well, I'm not sure, but when I get to heaven, I'll be sure to ask Jonah. And he replied, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? What if Jonah's in hell? And the little girl looked at the man and said, well, I guess you can ask him. (laughs) See, God uses the weak. God uses the weak to confound the mighty. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.27. And by doing that, God magnifies his own strength. And so these verses teach us to glorify God for his self-existence, for his spectacular creation, for his sovereign rule, for his unrivaled strength, that is, his splendor and his supremacy Overall, that's what David does. And as he does it, as he reflects on these truths, who God is and, and, and the fact that he rules over creation, as he's, he's drawn upon and, and to consider the heavens and to contemplate the majesty of God, as he's doing that, playing on his instrument and singing, a thought comes to mind, what is man? And that leads to our second part, the glory of man. Look at verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? 
or to use Calvin's words, David has descended from contemplating God and, and, and having contemplated God, Calvin says that David now scrutinizes himself. Having reflected on the knowledge of God, he now has the right frame of mind to make a judgment about man's place in the universe. And what he does is he begins with man's insignificance. Compared with even the small part of the universe that David can see as he, he looks up at the moon and the stars, you could do this yourself on a clear night, and, 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 and you see the universe, and then you know what's even beyond your eyes now because uh, we have telescopes and things like that. They didn't. When, when you consider that, we seem very insignificant in size. We're not too glorious. We're not as durable. The moon and the stars have outlasted countless generations of man. And so if this is true of man in relation to the heavens, imagine how much more it's true in relation to God. Earlier, I mentioned the two names of God, Yahweh and Adonai, the self-existent one and the mighty ruler. Well, David now uses two names for man, Enosh and Ben-Adam. Enosh emphasizes man's weakness and morality, and Ben-Adam means son of the ground. We came out of the ground, and we're going to return to the ground. And and so you see the contrast. God is self-existent. God is strong. Man is weak and mortal, here today and gone tomorrow. And so we start understanding our proper place. And do you see how foolish it is to think that man is the center of the universe? that man is the measure of all things. And yet, this is what makes it all the more amazing that God notices us, that he is mindful of us, that he cares for us. That's what verse 4 says. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David's saying, look, I've just considered who you are, your self-existence, your sovereignty, your power, everything about you. And, and then now I look at myself and realize I'm insignificant, and yet, and yet you're mindful of me. You, you, you care for me. See, your insignificance in creation, and let me point out, you are insignificant in the scheme of things. So am I, insignificant. I have a sweatshirt that says, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. It's not my quote. It's Count Zinzendorf's quote. Um, But it makes sense. We're insignificant in the scheme of things. But it shouldn't cause despair, like, oh, wow, woe is me. Why? Because God, David says, God has established a special relationship with you. He knows you, each one of you. He cares for you, each one of you. And as verse 5 says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God has given us a place of special significance and honor over all the other parts of creation. We have been crowned with glory. That, That is what astonished David so much. Man's glory, as insignificant as and small as it is, is even greater than the glory of the heavens. Now, don't make a mistake. Our glory is not our essence, as it is with God. God is glorious, period. And man's glory is derived, derived from God. 
Notice what the passage says. You have made man, you have crowned, you have given, verse 6, you have put. God did all those things. There is a large spider up here. He created the spider to show how insignificant I am when I see it. (laughs) You have made. You have made the spider. You have crowned man. You have made man. You have given man. You have put man, verses 5 and 6. If we are glorious, why are we glorious? It's because God who is glorious, who is glory itself, has brought us into special relationship with him. We have been set apart from all his other creatures. See, David here is going back to the garden. It's the time of man's creation. He's saying, I don't know why. It seems crazy to me, yet it's true. Of all the creation, we alone bear the image of God. Notice what he says about man. We were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. A better translation of that is we were made a little lower than God. That's how the NASB translates it. Our Bibles put it in the footnote, the ESV, and maybe you have the NIV. The word is Elohim. It's a name of God, and it makes sense because that's the name used in Genesis 1, and, and that's what David is referring to. We have been stamped with God's image, but we are not God. We're a little lower than God, and yet we are greater than all the rest of creation. Echoing Genesis 1, David says, we have been given dominion over the sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, says verse 7 and 8. We are positioned, right? There's God, there's the beasts, and we fall in between. Not God, and yet not beast either, in between. And see, it's that truth and the denial of that truth that has caused more havoc in our culture than any other teaching, in my humble opinion. See, our our society, generally speaking, um, and you could probably be even more specifically speaking, has lost sight of God. We, We never longer see man created in God's image whose chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're not created in God's image. We're just chance we got here. And, and unfortunately, the church hasn't been immune to this. Uh, and not only have some capitulated to culture and embraced a form of evolution, even those who deny evolution in principle have adopted it in practice. One writer said, God-centered worship is replaced with man-centered worship. And man-centered worship is nothing less than an attempt to evolutionize Christianity. He goes on to say, sociology and psychology have replaced Scripture and preaching. There's no place for that in the church that believes what David's preaching here. But in our society, we understand it. They fully on embraced evolutionary theory. That is macroevolutionary theory. Out of nothing came something. It outright denies the existence of God. And falling sure, uh, into what you would expect, they, they say we're just beasts. We just evolved from beasts. That's all we are. We have no dignity. We have no direction. We have no significance. We leave no standard. We have no standard by which to judge right and wrong. It's the mindset that gives justification to every possible immoral behavior. It it, it gives justification to slavery. They're just, they're not people. 
It, it gives justification to Hitler in treating Jews like animals. Why? Well, they're not humans. They're just here by chance. What's it matter? It gives justification to selling children in the sex trade. It gives justification to homosexuality and other sexual sins. It gives justification to abortion. If we are just animals, then you have no right to tell me how to act, what to do. I'm accountable to no one. What does that mean? I'm my own God. I do as I want. It's the philosophy of almost every major university in America today. It's the prominent position of almost every entertainer at least the ones that are pushed in front of us. There are some exceptions, but, you know, for the most part, it, it's the presupposition behind most, if not all, the outright foolish decisions our politicians make. It's just silliness. But there's no God. So it doesn't matter if there's no God. They're just following their philosophy. There's no accountability. There's no standard of morality. And so there's no reason to give thanks. There's no reason to praise God. But if you believe the Scriptures, if you believe King David, then you need to reject that in all its forms for the foolishness that it is. Let God be true and every man a liar, as the Bible tells us. God is there. He is not silent. He has spoken. We are made in His image. We do have dignity. We do have direction. We do have significance. We do have standards. We have been crowned with glory and honor. And so we have reason to praise. And God, God alone, the sovereign God, the eternal God, the always existing God is to be the center of our praise. And what's interesting, Dr. Boyce points this out, what's interesting is that David says, we're a little lower than God. We're not little gods. We're a little lower than God. But I, I want you to think about that. He didn't say we're a little higher than the beasts. He, he could have said that. It would be true, I guess, but, but, but he didn't. And the importance of this is found in that man's special position gives him a special privilege and duty to look up to God and not down to the beasts. See, despite the voice of the entertainment world, philosophy, the education system, we are to become more increasingly like God rather than increasingly like beast in our behavior. Throughout this section, David seems unaware of the fall. It's not that he's not. It's figuratively speaking. He just remains in Genesis 1 as he does this psalm. He's emphasizing our special relationship with God and God's special love and care for us. He's presenting our position the way we were created to be. That's how it was meant to be. If we're to live up to our perfect potential, if we're to have direction, dignity, significance, and standards, we must look up. We must look up to who? Yahweh, not down to the beast. Up to Adonai, not to the beast. Look up to Elohim, not to the beasts. We don't do it perfectly. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven, but we're to have direction. If we're going to have a dignity then that's where we need to look. And that's where the problem lies, as I just said. Rather than look up to God, we all too often look down to creation. Here we are, crowned with glory and honor, bearing the image of God. And yet, all too often, man bears the image of the beast. Paul said this, claiming to be wise, 
Romans 1, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, says Romans 1. I mean, just look around. We're no better than the animals. In fact, we're just a beast. We've exchanged the glory that we've had in being created in the image of God to live like beasts. And so what are we to do? How are we to regain our dignity this side of the fall? I'll close with this. How do we regain our dignity? Well, the answer is found in the third point, the glory of the God-man. See, because of our sin and rebellion, because of our stubbornness, because of our unwillingness to seek after God, because of our unwillingness to look up to God and and rather we look down to the beast, what God does is say, you don't look up to me, I'll tell you what, I will come down to you. And I will come down to you in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so if you're once again going to look up to God, you must first look to Jesus Christ. God sent his son to earth to save us from our sinful ignorance and rebellion, and by the way, to be the fulfillment of Psalm 8. God is the creator. Jesus is the creator, says John 1. Well, God's name is above everything. Philippians 2, Jesus' name is superior to every other name. Uh, Jesus demonstrates his power through weakness. This is why he quotes, as we said earlier, Psalm 8 in Matthew 21, setting the contrast between the children and the enemies of God. And what about Hebrews 2? Jesus is made a little lower than the angels. He's crowned with glory and honor. And though at present we do not see everything subject to him, yet there is something we do see. We see Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. Our true humanity and our identity is found in Jesus. That's why we have identity crises in our culture, even in the church, because we're trying to find our identity in the things that were created, and we'll never be fulfilled in doing that. It's only when it's found in Christ. See, through his suffering and death, he has restored for us God's original purpose that was marred by sin. See, through Christ, we are restored to our kingly role and dominion over creation. And so therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, this is what Hebrews says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. To this he called you through our gospel to say you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fix your thoughts on Christ. If you look to Jesus, 2 Thessalonians 2, then you are looking to God If you look to Jesus, if you fix your eyes on Jesus, if you consider Jesus, who was a little lower than the angels at one point, but now he is glorified. If you look to him as your Savior, as you look to him as your Lord, what you're doing is then looking up to God rather than the beast. And as you do that, that glory, that derived glory from God himself will be restored in you day by day. O Lord, our Lord Jesus, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have revealed these truths to us. 
We ask, Father, that you may instill in our hearts to look up and look to Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.